0: our American stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite recurring segments, Radio
1: Candy. We've all seen emails from the Nigerian prince who wants to wire us a few million dollars in exchange for a hefty down payment. Well, recently, a YouTube blogger who goes by the name of Pleasant Green was contacted by a man in Liberia who said he needed some help. Sometimes things aren't exactly as they seem.
2: Let me catch you all up on this little story of ours. A couple of months ago I got a message on Facebook from a guy named Joel in Liberia. He said that he was in need of some financial assistance and asked me to send him some premium electronics. He said that he would sell these on the Liberian market and then split the profits with me. Now I figured that this was just one of those African internet scams, but I decided to play along and see where it led me. I figured the more time of his that I could waste, the less time that he'd have to spend ripping other people off. So, I told him that I didn't have any electronics to send, but I did have a business proposition if he was interested. I told him that I was in the photography business and that if he'd be willing to take pictures of where he lived and send them to me, I'd pay him for the ones that I liked. He agreed and the next morning he sent a few over, and they were just terrible. The guy had to be using a 15 year old flip phone or worse, but I was surprised to see him actually try. He mentioned repeatedly that he was looking for God's favor through someone and that he believed that person was me. So I thought I would invest a little bit of money in this guy to see if he was scamming me or if he was seriously trying to improve his situation. So I mailed him a $30 camera and told him to take some more pictures with it. Well the pictures were a little better quality, but they still sucked. So I said to him that if he wanted to make money taking pictures, he needed to practice. He needed to hold the camera still and make sure his subject had plenty of light. And would you believe that he actually improved? I mean, some of his pictures were just stunning. They really show the beauty and difficulties of living in Liberia. So then I had to figure out how I was gonna compensate Joel for his work. So I put together a photo book of his very best pictures and launched an Indiegogo campaign. I was blown away at the response. People from all over the world came to support Joel and purchase his book. This is your chance to make a real difference. In total, we sold nearly 1,000 copies in 40 different countries. I made a promise to Joel that we'd split the profits 50-50 and that my half would go to charity. So I wrote to Joel and said that I wanted to give my portion to the people of Liberia and asked if there was anything in his community that I could help with. He said that there were a lot of children that were in need because their parents were so poor. So I asked, how can we help the children? And he said, school materials, stationery, book bags, and chairs. These are the things that children suffer for the most. He said that we should start by targeting the youngest 100 kids and that it would cost me about $500. I thought, this is where we're really gonna find out what Joel's made out of. Either he's gonna use that money for the kids or he's gonna keep it for himself. But I still owed him money, so I decided to move forward and see what happened. So I got back on the Western Union's website to transfer the money, And my payment was declined. Apparently my bank thought that someone had hacked into my account and was sending all of my money to Liberia. So I called them to tell them that it was in fact me, but they were closed for Columbus Day. So I went to an ATM and withdrew $500 cash. Then I walked to the nearest Western Union teller to wire it the old-fashioned way. This ended up being one of the strangest moments of my life. Imagine standing there in a crowded ride Aid at a Western Union kiosk asking if you could wire $500 to a guy named Joel in Liberia. Well I was pleased to know that the money did go through and that Joel was able to pick it up because what happened next was incredible. Joel took a trip down to the local market and cleaned them completely out of children's book bags, notebooks, and other supplies for the children in five local schools. He had to hire a taxi just to hold everything. I made sure to tell Joel to bring his camera along, not just to prove that he delivered, but to show his customers what's possible with a little hard work and a lot of faith. When you give someone a chance, sometimes they're not who you thought they were. Sometimes they surprise you. And sometimes you end up being the answer to their prayers.
1: Mark Knopfler was the frontman for British rock group Dire Straits. He's riffing on his passion for the American classic Gibson Les Paul.
3: I've wanted one of these guitars since I was very, very young, young teenager, really. I have pestered my poor old dad for years about getting hold of one, and um, he never could afford it, I'm afraid, at that time. So I had to make do with something else, of course, uh, you know, is the way. But there's nothing wrong with waiting for the good things in life. As soon as I got my hands on the 58, you know, I pressed it into service immediately. It was uh, such a step up from everything that i would known before in terms of these things. And I had a, I had one from the 70s, and uh, it was just never the same thing. You I know, mean, I had to mess around with it a bit, and I was very excited about having my first last ball, you know, but as soon as I, I got it, I realized it was on a different level altogether. What I used to do with the 58 on stage was I just look at it and then give it Give it a little kiss like that (laughs) because they are such great things to play. I've used it solidly in the studio and on tour ever since. I'd just like to tell you about the prototypes. I was expecting it to be maybe okay. And then when I came in today and I saw 50 of them, as soon as I picked it up I went (laughs) hold on a minute and started to play it and realized it was not only did it look great but it was great and i actually used it on a recording session almost immediately you pick them up and you go oh my oh my (laughs) oh my goodness that's perfect they're just phenomenal guitars and they sound amazing they're just working straight out of the box yeah man, look at these Look at, I mean They're beautiful man, beautiful It's just phenomenal job by Gibson Custom They're just amazing guitars In
1: 1994 the internet was a brand new idea to most people Here's the cast of the Today Show back then Struggling to grasp the concept. See, there it is. Violence at NBC. GE. I mean,
4: uh, what Allison should know. What what is internet anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer network. The one that's becoming really big now. What
1: do you mean that's big? How does one? What do you write to it? Like mail?
4: No, a lot of people use it and communicate. I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is?
1: And this is Radio Candy. Sounds that stimulate the senses on Our American Stories.
0: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell every kind of story here on this show and we hit history and we hit sports and we hit the arts of course and we tell good stories and we tell sad stories, love stories, stories about death and we've previously brought you Julie Hirsch's story of trying to commit suicide three times and how electroconvulsive therapy treatments helped rewire her brain and kept the disease of depression at bay. And we talk about these stories because they touch so many American lives, depression, suicide. Uh, Our family, my family, was touched personally. A niece committed suicide almost three years ago. And to this day, it's still with us, our entire family. Well, Julie is also a writer at Psychology Today, and she now graciously shares with us one of her stories there, this one called The Miracle of Gratitude.
4: A few weeks ago at Eatsy's, I bumped into my friend Donna, who has a brain tumor. My husband had planned a Sunday gathering with friends. Translation, he invited the friends over, and I got to plan everything. After a few minutes of snarling under my breath, I decided not to be mad, not to cook, and just pick up fun food at Eatsy's. I entered the store to be met with a clear voice of a tenor and tasty samples of Thanksgiving sweet potatoes and stuffing. Then I saw my friend Donna. She told me she felt lucky. The surgeon had removed most of the tumor in a risky operation that might have left her dead, blind, or with facial paralysis. Her struggles weren't over, they couldn't remove All of the tumor. The growth within her head was something she'd have to monitor and manage. Yet somehow she found new purpose in comforting people who had brain tumors. Her brown eyes widened with joy as she posed the question Do you ever consider your disease a blessing? Five years ago, if you had asked me this question, I would have answered with a definitive, no. That summer's relapse, only six months after the previous relapse, burdened me. I wore a weird cloak of embarrassed, defeated rage. The January before, I defiantly stood down one young psychiatrist who insisted I needed more electroconvulsive therapy. They suggested 12 to 18 treatments. 12 to 18 treatments? I insisted six would do. Our conversation went something like this. I started, This is ridiculous. If you look at my personal history, this is way too much ECT. I had five treatments in 2001 and seven in 2007. The doctor, a woman, responded, Our statistics show that more ECT leads to better results. I shot back. I also know most ECT patients relapse within six months. Not my patients, she responded. This really ticked me off. I shot back at her. Do you have any patients who've stayed well eight years at a time? She stammered. Well, I, I haven't been practicing medicine that long. Then I got really tough. When you have patients who have stayed as well as I have as long as I have, then I'll listen to you. Until then, I suggest you might learn something from me. I strutted out of her office, chest out. Sure, I would never be sick again. When I lay on the gurney to receive ECT, Less than six months later, this same psychiatrist administered the treatment. Well, I relented, this is embarrassing. She smiled, no, I told you so, lurking at the corners of her lipstick. I just want to see you well, she said. Once again, I've sprinted back to wellness, my ability to bounce back, lending credence to the idea that God only gives us what we can handle. As I relish my wellness, my friend Donna's question stuck with me. What can I be grateful for in another depressive break? Without much thought, a few things spring to mind. Early that summer, Before my depression tipped off, I spoke at Dallas Black Dance Theater on mental wellness. To encourage attentiveness, I gave the students, they were about ages 8 to 16, an incentive. Any student who created his or her list for mental wellness would be put in a raffle to see Dream Girls at the Dallas Theater Center. One precocious student asked, but But I can't drive, can you give me a ticket for my mom too? How could I resist that? Between this talk and Dreamgirls, my depression raised its head. I like to think of myself as a connector, one who moves easily between groups, hopefully to inspire one side to listen to another. I have friends who are liberal, conservative, gay, straight, all colors and shapes that summer. The gaps between these groups grew so large that I fell into the caverns between them. The events hit like gunfire. The Orlando shootings. I went to a conference in D.C. where the members were asked to join an affinity group of those who were only like them. Something in my life experience that only seems to lead to divisiveness. But I guess old people in theater wasn't an affinity group then the Dallas shootings, then the political campaign. In the middle of all this anger and disunion, a young woman named Mariah stepped into my life. Mariah is a young dancer at Dallas Black Dance Theater, and she was one of the Dream Girls winners. Her dad, dressed in a sharp suit and a fedora with a stylish feather, sat next to her at the show. He told me how his wife, Cam, had let him come because he liked Girls so much. They were so grateful. I told them that I wanted to give them another set of tickets so he and his wife could have a date night. Cam called me a few days later, and she told me that she and Mariah wanted to take me out for ice cream. We met, Mariah showing me her journal that she kept the message she told herself stick out in my mind she wrote these down i am me i am specially made to be me i am precious and priceless i thank god for me i remember a good friend telling me once that his job as a parent was making sure his kids tank was full There are good times and bad times in all of our lives. You fill up your child's tank so he or she can navigate the rough stuff. Mariah's tank, thanks to her mom and dad, was filled to the brim. I happened to see Mariah and her family again recently at another performance at Dallas Black Dance Theater. Cam told me that she'd been thinking about me, praying for me. This family's effort to say thanks buoyed me during a particularly hard time. I remember telling Mariah, Mariah, not all white people are angry and mean. Please remember that. She looked at me with eyes of pure love. Would I have appreciated the Kemp's so much without a broken heart? I doubt it. In my vulnerability, a space for friendship opened. I also know that without my illness, I would have not been able to see, once again, an outpouring of love and care and compassion from my family and my husband. And this time, my children, now as adults, showed a level of loyalty, strength, and sensitivity that I suspected they had but had never really been put to the test. Am I grateful for this relapse, Donna? That's a strange question, but I have to say yes. I feel blessed. Sometimes only in our worst moments can we see the most brilliant miracles. And
0: thank you for that story, Julie. And again, you can read her work in psychology today The title, The Miracle of Gratitude. And we'd love to hear your stories here on Our American Stories. Share them with us at ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. We'll help you record them, and we'll get them on air. Because here on Our American Stories, your stories matter as much as anyone's. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And the subject for this segment, well, actually, we just heard it a couple of times right there in that piece by Stevie Ray Vaughan. He had a nice, well, pause right there. And we've been pushing around this piece for, I don't know, since... It seems like last year, in praise of the one-second pause, which Hengler worked up, and, uh, well, we're going to resuscitate it, because it seems like it's already been buried. And when we we went to Hengler and said, hey, I think we should do that one-second pause, now he went, what? You're serious. We're not going to really do it, are we? And we really are. And, uh, well, before we do, I just wanted to talk a little bit about why pauses matter, in literature. And I don't know if you remember your class way back, if you ever took a poetry class or a writing class. But the cesura is one of the most important literary devices there is in poetry. And well, what it means well, here's the actual definition from the poetry archive. A cesura is a strong pause within a line and is often found alongside an enjambment. If all the pauses in the sense of the poem were to occur at the line breaks. This could become dull. Moving the pauses so they occur within the line creates musical interest. A caesura may be marked like this, and then you'll see two straight lines next to each other. So when you're reading a poem and you see that, that means shut up, basically. Shut up. Two lines. John Moles' Coming Home has a first stanza that sets off in a very steady rhythm with the first four sentences the same length as the line and the same length as each other. The fifth sentence is only half a line long and the pause following that full stop creates a really dramatic sesora. So again, where and how to use pauses. And by the way, musicians, great ones, especially as they get older. Listen to B.B. King play when he was young. Listen to him play when he was older. And I say the same for my dear and most beloved guitarist and my personal favorite, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Listen to him play when he was young, up and down the fret like a madman. Older, sometimes he just shut up. Hardest thing to do sometimes. By the way, all over the Bible, you'll see... The same thing, called something different. And I'm holding in my hand Psalm 3. Save me, O my God. That's one of the Psalms of David when he fled from Absalom with his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul there is no salvation from him in God. Cesar. I'm supposed to shut up now. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So on and so forth. So now on to Hengler's in praise of the one-second pause. And, well, we're going to be talking to someone, or Greg did, named Marty Nemko, who holds a Ph.D. in education from the University of California, Berkeley. He is in his 26th year as a host of a national public radio San Francisco radio show. And Marty recently wrote a piece for Psychology Today entitled, In Praise of the One Second Pause, he began his piece asking
5: these questions. How do you feel when someone interrupts you? Very few people like it. Well, this question is harder. How do you feel when someone starts to talk the nanosecond you finish saying something? Chances are you don't like that either. After all, that suggests that the person was more interested in saying something than in digesting what you said. Or maybe the person stopped paying attention and was just waiting for you to finish. Now, in contrast, imagine that you finished saying something and the person took a full second to think. Maybe saying, hmm, now how are you feeling? You're probably feeling the person thought your statement was worth pondering and, more foundational that you were taken seriously, which we all want. Well, we had Our American
0: Stories' Greg Hengler ask Marty, what would we say to someone who just likes to talk and never takes that breath? Or how would we respond to somebody who consistently interrupts us? Here's Marty's answer.
5: It's very difficult to change people, but I am a big believer in giving tactfully dispensed unwanted advice. So if somebody really is interrupting me all the time, I would, in a very tactful and simple way, say, I, I really would like to finish. And if you watch CNN or you watch any kind of TV or radio show, you'll see that the experienced guests who are on panels, if there is one of their um, panelists is interrupting all the time, they'll say something like, I allowed you to finish, please allow me, and do that in that very calm way. You pay a price no matter what. You pay a price if you ignore it. But you pay a bigger price if you're constantly ignoring it. And again, it depends on the situation. If you're getting interviewed for a job, I'm not sure you're going to want to interrupt <laughs> the interviewer and say, to tell the interrupter, would you please stop interrupting me? <laughs> yeah. But in more common situations where the risk-reward ratio is better, it may be worth offering a bit of gentle feedback.
0: We know a man who adheres to a four-sentence rule. This involves speaking approximately four sentences and then waiting to see if the listener wants to hear more. He does this because we often say more than our listener wants to hear. Is this rule basically a different take compared to your one-second pause suggestion?
5: It's a very different rule, and I find that uh, too rigid. That's the rule of how long you should talk. I'm much more in favor of what I call the traffic light rule. During the first 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is green. The person is paying attention, uh, not overwhelmed with content. During the second 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is yellow. There's an increased chance that the person is wishing you would stop or indeed has something that he or she wants to say at the 60 second mark you occasionally uh, want to run a red light which is uh, but usually you want to stop so i think that gives a little more flexibility than four sentences cuz sometimes things take less than four sentences and sometimes more
0: boy these are really good rules to live by actually never really thought about that before i think i've got like a 9 minute rule i got to <laughs> really work on this man here's marty on a pet peeve he has
5: involving conversation narcissism normally in a conversation it is like a ping-pong game you want to spend roughly half the time with the ball in your court Roughly, it's more like 40 to 60% in a conversation. And very many people violate the rule in either direction. They're either narcissistic and they will talk about 80 or 90% of the time and never ask a question about you. Or if they do, it's obligatory, and then they're, but they're really not paying attention. They're only half listening. Or on the other hand, of course, there are people who have difficulty speaking up and who talk 20, 10 to 20% of the time. So a nice rule of thumb is to go for roughly 40 to 60% of the time using the traffic light rule and using the one second pause. But I would be full of BS if I said that was very easy to change. It is very difficult to change a natural habit of interrupting, talking at too great length, and not pausing.
0: Well, so far we have chose to cut out Greg's question to Marty. But for this one, we will be including Greg's question because it's a personal one. But wait for it. So is Marty's answer.
1: I don't necessarily consider myself a narcissist, but I, I know that I struggle with returning the favor when somebody asks me a question, you know, how was your day? What did you do this weekend? A lot of times I'll give them an answer, and then I won't say, well, how was yours? And then I walk away, and I can, it's usually four or five minutes later, I'm like, oh, man, I did it again. I didn't ask them. And I just must come off as just selfish.
5: Yeah, well, that's what the narcissist thing is about. It becomes <laughs> not high enough priority that while you count, so does your conversation partner. Ouch. Ouch. That's stung.
1: Greg asked for some clarity, so I fall into the narcissist category.
5: Well, it's too strong. I mean, okay. you're way ahead of the game because you're concerned about it. You're aware about it. You're in that interim transition period from when you are unaware and just oblivious and continuing to blather on, and a full conversation partner. So I would bet that you will do fine. It's your, you're just in that transition period. You're not a narcissist. There you go,
0: folks. None of us here have perfected the art of dialogue and thought this would be a piece of advice we could all put in our back pocket and actually use. In praise of the one-second pause, and don't forget, 30 seconds green light, 45 seconds yellow light, you go past a minute and don't let the other guy talk, you got a problem. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about our men and women in uniform on this show, and we don't wait for Memorial Day and Veterans Day to do it. We do it all year round because the men deserve it, and we talk about men present and men and women past who served, some who've paid the ultimate price. And for this one, we turn to General John Kelly. He spoke to a group of families who'd lost sons and daughters in service of our nation. This was back in 2014. He was then a four-star general. He offered them a glimpse into the on-duty lives of their loved ones. He told the story of the last six seconds of two combat Marines killed in action under his command. Two men who are absolutely extraordinary and absolutely what the Marine Corps expects
6: from each and every member. On the 22nd of April, 2008, two Marine battalions, the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, the Walking Dead, from Vietnam fame, and the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, were switching out in a place called Ramadi, Iraq. One battalion was going home in a few days and the other just starting its seven-month tour. Two Marines, Corporal Jonathan Yale and Lance Corporal Jordan Herter, 22 and 20 years old, respectively one from each battalion. They were assuming the watch together at the entrance gate to an outpost that contained a makeshift barracks housing 50 Marines. The same broken down ramshackle building was also home to 100 Iraqi police who were our allies. They were my men in this fight against the terrorists in Ramadi. Yale was a dirt poor mixed race kid from Virginia with a wife and a daughter and a mother and a sister who lived with him, and he supported them as well, on $13,000 a year. Herter was a middle-class white kid from Long Island. The two of them were from two completely different worlds in our country. Not good, not bad, just different. Had they not joined the Marine Corps, they would never have known each other. They would never have even understood that multiple Americas exist simultaneously, depending on your education level, your family's income status, maybe. But they were Marines, they were combat Marines, and because of this bond, they were brothers as close as if they were born to the same woman. The mission orders they received from the sergeant, their squad leader, I'm sure, went something like this, okay, you two clowns, stand this post and let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. You clear on that? And I'm sure Yale and Herter then rolled their eyes and said in unison something. like, Yeah, Sergeant, we got it. We know what we're doing. Screw you. (laughs) Again, I'm prior enlisted. I know how they think. (laughs) They then relieved two other Marines on watch, who, as it turned out, were probably the two luckiest Marines on the earth that day. And they assumed those posts, Yale and Herter, A few minutes later, a very large blue truck turned down the alleyway that was no more than 100 yards in length. It sped its way through the serpentine concrete walls, Jersey walls. The truck then stopped just short of where these two were posted. It detonated. It killed both of them catastrophically. And If you know what combat's like, you know what I'm talking about when I say catastrophically. 24 brick masonry houses were damaged or destroyed by the blast. A mosque 100 meters away collapsed. The truck's engine came to rest 200 meters away and it knocked down a building before it came to rest. Their explosive guys reckoned that the blast was made by a bomb of at least 2,000 pounds of explosive. Two died and because these two young infantrymen died, they didn't know how to run from danger. 150 men, 50 US Marines and 100 Iraqis were saved. When I read the situation report, a few hours after it happened, I called the regimental commander, Luke Krapurata, and I asked him for details about what happened. It seemed different to me. Unfortunately, Marines dying or being seriously wounded is common in combat. We expect Marines and for that matter soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Coast Guardsmen, regardless of rank, to do their duty, to stand their ground, and to die if that's what the mission requires. The regional Commander had just returned from the site. He agreed with me, but reported to me that there were no American witnesses, just Iraqi police. I figured if there was any chance of finding out what actually happened and to recognize these young men for what they've done, I'd have to go down there myself because I understood unfortunately that the bureaucrats in Washington would never accept Iraqi statements for what had taken place. If there was any chance at all, it had to come under my signature. So I traveled to Ramadi the next day and spoke to half a dozen Iraqi police, all of whom told me the same story. They said the truck turned down into the alley and sped up as it made its way through the serpentine Jersey walls. They all said they knew immediately what was going on, particularly when the Marines began to fire. The Iraqis all began firing as well, then to a man ran for safety just prior to the explosion. They all survived. Many were injured, some seriously injured. But as one of the Iraqis (coughs) said to me, Sir, they'd run from the danger like any normal man would, to save his life. What he didn't know until then, he said, and what he learned at that instant, was that Americans are not normal. With tears welling up, he said to me, sir, in the name of Allah, no sane man would have stood there and done what they did. No sane man. They saved all of us. What we didn't know at the time, what I didn't know at the time, and only learned a couple of days later, after I wrote a summary of statement of, these, of this bravery and submitted both Yale and Herder for Navy Crosses, which is the number two award for Marines and sailors in combat. What I didn't know was that one of the security cameras we had at the location that was damaged initially in the blast had caught everything. It happened exactly as these Iraqis described it to me. It took exactly six seconds by that recording from the truck into the valley until it exploded, six seconds. And you can watch, and I did watch many, many times on this recording, the last six seconds of their lives. When it first started, I suppose it took about a second or so for the Marines to separately come to the conclusion about what was going on. They had no time to talk it over, only enough time to take half an instant and think about what the sergeant maybe had told them a few minutes before, let no unauthorized persons or vehicles to pass. At that point, I think, according to the recording, this Marines had about five seconds to live. Think of it, five seconds to live. I don't think they knew it, they didn't have time. Took about another two seconds for the two jarheads to raise their weapons, to take aim, and to open up at that truck. By this time, the truck was halfway through the barriers and gaining speed the whole time. Here the recording shows the number of Iraqi policemen, some of whom had fired their AK-47s, were now scattering like the normal and rational men they were, some running right past the Marines. The two Marines had about three seconds to live. For about two seconds more, the recording shows the Marines firing their weapons nonstop. The truck's windshield exploded into shards of glass as their rounds took it apart and undoubtedly tore into the body of the terrorist that was trying to kill their brothers. Unaware of the danger at the time, the Marines and Iraqi soldiers could take comfort in the fact if they'd had known that two Marines were on watch and would die. Before they ran. The truck careens to a stop immediately in front of the two Marines. In all of this instantaneous violence Yale and Herter never hesitated. They never stepped back. They never even started to step back. They never shifted their weight. With their feet spread shoulder-width apart they leaned into the fire and fired as fast as they could. They had only at this point one second to live. And then the truck explodes. The camera goes blank. And the two young men go to their God. Six seconds. Not enough time to think about their country or their flag or about their lives or their deaths, but more than enough time for two very brave young men like your sons and daughters, like your brothers and sisters, like your spouses two very brave young men to do their duty for eternity. That is the kind of people who are on watch for us all over the world tonight. That is the kind of young men and women that came from your families. And for those of you tonight and all of the families that have lost the light of their lives, they can say to every American, that it was my boy or it was my girl who stood their post and did their duty into eternity.
0: Corporal Jonathan Yale's story, Lance Corporal Jordan Herder's, and that's General John Kelly, their last six seconds, revealed everything about their character and the Marine Corps. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Nirvana, and it's off their first album. It's called School. And we love bumping in with music that relates to the segments we're about to do. I didn't know that song, and I'm a Nirvana fan. Thanks for that, Jesse. And uh, joining us right now to talk about a story that we keep hitting in various ways is Angela Browning. And we recently came across a Facebook group filled with mothers and parents, nearly 6,000 of them, who are working on changing the law in Florida to fix a big problem in their kids' lives. But it's not just a Florida problem. It's a national problem. Our kids just aren't getting enough, well, some would say not nearly enough, recess in school. And a new group of so-called recess moms has had enough. We're joined again by recess mom, Angela Browning. Angela, thanks for joining us
7: much for having me.
0: You know, Angela, before we start, we always like to know, you know, where where are you in Florida? What particular town? Talk about your family a little bit, and then ultimately, let's talk about what led you to this space.
7: Sure. Well, I live in Orlando, Florida, which is in Orange County, uh, with my husband and our three boys. We have 10-year-old twins uh, who just started fourth grade last week and a six-year-old who started first grade. Um, I actually have a a law degree from Ave Maria School of Law, which is now down in Naples, Florida, Um, but I work as a paralegal for an insurance company. I like having the flexibility to be able to volunteer in my kids' classrooms uh, and and be there for them when they need me, So, so that was a choice that I made.
0: You bet. And so you know a little bit about the intersection of the law and the culture, particularly Ave Maria does a great job of doing that. And Ave Maria is a Catholic law school founded by the Domino's pizza founder, Tom Monahan, and they do a great job at preparing people to do just what Angela's doing. Uh, So, Angela, your your kids uh, suddenly find themselves without a recess. Talk a little bit about where that came from, because obviously there had to be an anti-recess movement before there was a pro-recess movement, only that anti-recess movement probably had nothing to do with parents. Where did this thing spring up from? Whose idea was it?
7: Sure. Well, what happens is, you know, our school districts tell us we, you know, we didn't cancel recess. But but what did happen is that uh, somewhere along the line, this testing uh, really just took over in our classrooms. And the focus switched from the well-being of our children to uh, you know, making sure that these children do well on these tests because there are very high stakes attached to them here in Florida. That's where our schools are graded. Um, our teachers, uh, their VAM scores now come from those, from those test scores. Um, so funding comes from them. And so my children, uh, all of a sudden, were coming home complaining about school, complaining that the day was too long, crying, asking me not to send them back to school. And my older boys had just begun second grade. Um, so I just, it just caused me to wake up and ask what was going on, why all of a sudden were my eight-year-olds, who are supposed to love school and love learning, um, begging me not to send them back.
0: And and so you're a parent, and obviously you you take parenting really seriously because you could be practicing law, and what you're instead doing is doing paralegal work so that you can time shift and you can move, move the work around and you can have flexibility to be a present parent. So where did it spring in your head that this was an idea worth fighting for? And then what were the steps you took to fight?
7: Well, I'll tell you, the first thing that I did was I asked, and that's what I think is really important. You know, we tell our group members, ask your kids if they're getting recess, because before this, I didn't even think to ask. So I asked my boys, well, what, what about recess? When you go out and you get to play with your friends, don't you get to have fun at recess? And they said, well, we don't get recess that often anymore. And I said, what do you mean you don't get recess that often anymore? And they said, well, we only get to go to recess once or twice a week when we don't have PE. And I, I was just horrified. I mean, some of my best memories during elementary school happened on the playground. And so I looked into it, and I realized that my children were getting 15 minutes of recess, once or twice a week, uh, and I had a friend who, um, who lives near to me, but her daughters go to another school, and she and I talked about it. It was the same thing. Her kids were down to uh, two 20-minute recesses a week, and we just decided, you know, this is not okay. It's not okay for us. Our children are young. They have a right to be children. They have a right to play. Playing is developmentally appropriate learning for elementary school children, and we just talked one day in early October of 2014 and decided it was stop time to stop complaining to our friends and, and start being advocates for our children. You
0: well, know, this is a great story. And I, I just a little backwards before we go forwards in the next segment, the the testing and the state testing, you raised that. And there, there are lots of us who believe that you've got to hold teachers and schools accountable so we don't sure. we don't hate testing but the question sure. is and I know my little girl's experiencing this here in Mississippi it she'll say dad it never stops it's yeah. test after test after test we're testing for the test we're prepping for the test then after the test we take another test and so in a sense you're not saying you don't want any accountability for the schools because we need a way to measure schools it's just testing gone wild
7: absolutely 100% agree. I am not opposed to testing. I am opposed to uh, a a culture where the stakes of testing are so high that it takes over our classrooms. Uh, We lose centers in the younger grades. We lose recess. We lose access to physical education. We lose access to art and music. These children are being tested and assessed and they are being taught to fill in bubbles. And we need to teach children to think critically. We need to to test them. We need to assess where they are. We need to make sure that we are seeing learning gains in our classrooms. But we can't let it take over teaching. We need to teach these children. That's
0: so well said. And by the way, these very things we're cutting out might just help raise those test scores, Angela. That's the point, too that test scores are complicated and the human mind is complicated and you can't put people in a box and my goodness, you can't anesthetize them by just having them repeat over and over the same old thing so they can fill out a bubble on a sheet This is Lee Habib, this is Our American Stories Recess Moms and Angela Browning is one of them and she's fighting the fight in Orlando and in the state of Florida More after these messages with Angela This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love it when citizens take a stand and punch back at the bureaucracies that rule their lives and our lives. And it happens in every walk of life, but no place worse than our local schools. And one mom, well, she decided to fight back against lack of recess. And by the way, it's not just recess, as we learned in the last segment. It's so many other things uh, because of testing regimes that are now crowding out space for our kids development and particularly their creative outlets in, in schools across this country. It's not just a Florida problem, but we have one mom, Angela Browning, who has sparked a mini revolution in the state of Florida. And we pick up where we left off Angela. So, you know, this is a problem. You identify it. I think what moms typically do is they go, and thank goodness there are present moms in the school. Uh, they go, let's go to the school board. So what happens next?
7: Uh, So we created a petition uh, for Orange County. We created a Facebook page. Uh, We grew our our number of moms, so to speak. Um, We went to our school board and we presented them with binders full of research. We came upon the research by accident, um, but there are very few subjects on which all of the experts agree and recess is one of them. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the National Association for Sport and Physical Education, the CDC, the list goes on and on. They all find that recess is a critical part of the school day and crucial to a child's development. And so we brought this research to our school board. We presented them uh, with this research. We literally begged and pleaded um, for them to do the right thing, to restore 20 minutes of daily recess, for all elementary school students in our district? And the answer was a resounding no. Um, it wasn't just a resounding no. We actually had school board members from the bench uh, say things like, if you take away the play, 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 the school gets an A, A, A. Oh, my goodness. And obviously, we were horrified. <laughs>
0: oh, my goodness. And by the way, how condescending, and this is always what bugs you, is if you know different and you're a citizen and you go to these school boards, they act as if you're the rabble, like you don't have an informed opinion. And that may be one of the dumbest things anybody in education could ever say to somebody. And I say that as a dad who won superintendent of the year and teacher of the year, a tremendous educator, and he always fought for creative space for his kids and things like recess because he knew that's how you had an engaged child. So the school board blows you off. But little do they know, well, there was a lawyer in their midst and someone yeah. who was not, and a mom even worse, a mom who is a lawyer and has some time. Talk about right. the next step, Angela.
7: Well, we contacted our legislator, who um, ironically happens to be a teacher in our district. Uh, we, we went to him and we said, uh, listen, this is the problem. We have, um, we have presented our school board with solutions They're not interested in them. They are interested in uh, giving us more and more excuses, and we need help. We don't know what to do. And he said to us, very honestly, he said, I don't know if I can help you, but I'm going to research this problem, and I'm sure as heck going to try. And And he went back, and he researched the problem. He saw that that we had gone about this the right way, and and he called us one day, uh, and he said, listen, I'm on my way back home from Tallahassee, and I want you to know that when I get home, I'm going to write a bill. And we're going to solve this problem throughout the state of Florida once and for all. Um, and we were thrilled. We uh, we reached out and joined with other recess moms who had their own recess efforts in districts across the state of Florida. Um, we we have moms that represent 24 uh, counties, and um, we just banded together and we decided that we were gonna we were gonna try to get this bill passed.
0: And what happened, because it's quite—it's almost a thriller, Angela, because each step you think you're coming up, and then whack. You get whacked again, and then thank goodness for persistent parents, you just keep coming back at them. What happened next?
7: Well, uh, the bill was filed in Tallahassee in December of 2015. Uh, We worked our butts off trying to get the bill heard in committee. Um, We traveled to Tallahassee as recess moms. Uh, We would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Get ready, get in the car, drive four hours uh, north to Tallahassee, uh, spend all day meeting with state representatives and state senators, uh, eat dinner, and then come back and get home about midnight. So we managed to get the bill through the entire House with the help of our sponsor in the House, um, who, as I said, was Representative Renee Placencia. We were absolutely thrilled. There were only two legislators on the floor who voted against our bill. In the Senate, however, our first committee of reference was the pre-K through 12 education committee, and that was chaired by a senator by the name of John Legg, uh, who did not like our bill. He said he felt that recess should continue to be handled locally. He refused to meet with us, refused to take our phone calls, refused to respond to our emails. Um, he, he really would have nothing to do to us with us. So unfortunately, we weren't able to get the bill uh, through the Senate, uh, but we dusted ourselves off. Uh, We have been working in the off season uh, and we're really, really thrilled about how things look for us next year. We've, um, we've made some really great progress.
0: Well, good for you because the school board was counting on you going away. And by the way, as my dad always said, he loved active parents, but so many superintendents didn't because they, they were seen as impediments and blockage to just doing what they felt like doing. And for my dad's sake, it was always, let's get the buy-in of the parents because there's nothing like parents Who agree with educators it can be a really you can you can make some great changes and you you didn't quit you you got you got a 112 to two vote in the house the Senate blocks you um, and you're back at it again talk to other moms listening out there in other states Angela about what they can do
8: sure
7: well we're gonna need you know we're gonna need help to get this done but as I said we believe this will be our year it's really important for parents to get engaged and get involved Until I asked my children um, what they were doing at recess and how often they had it, I didn't know. So you really got to ask your children, do you get that break in the school day, and do you get it every single day, regardless of whether or not your kids have PE. If you find that your children are not getting that break, then you need to go to your principal, and you need to ask them to implement a universally uh, recommended research-based 20-minute daily recess period, and you need to be proud of your advocacy for your children. You need to be willing to say to your principal, look, I think you're a wonderful person. I'm asking you to do this at the school level. If you can't do it or if you won't do it, I just want to let you know that I'm going to keep moving up the ladder until I get it done. Good for you. That's really that's really what we've done uh, on the state level. We are so proud to say that we have secured the, um, the support of the future Speaker of the House and the future Senate President next year, um, our bill will be sponsored again by Representative Placencia, and it will be sponsored in the Senate this year by a Senator out of Miami Dade County, um, Senator Flores, who is a mom who has young children. So, um, so we love that, and and I think it's really great, um, a really great kind of keep pushing, keep trying success story to just share with your audience that. The future Speaker of the House, who has now committed to support our bill next session, is actually one of the two legislators who voted against the bill in the House
0: last year. Wow, good for you. And that's the power of a lot of moms continuing to push. And in the end, it is a democracy, and it is, in the end, uh, a state legislature that better respond to large groups of people or be voted out of office. I had one last question for parents who hear... Physical ed, or PE class, is a substitute for recess. Explain to the folks why PE I mean, I know the answer to this, but what's the difference between PE and recess as it relates to your kids' development?
7: Sure, PE is an incredibly important part of your child's education, but it is separate and distinct from recess. Um, there are unique skills that children learn during unstructured play on the playground. That's where they learn to problem-solve. That's where they leadership skills and social skills and coping skills, Um, and those things cannot be replicated in the classroom. PE is a class. It is structured. It is teacher-led. Your children are directed to do A, B, and C. Uh, It is not unstructured free play. And here in Florida, there are Florida standards attached to the PE curriculum, and those teachers are required to show learning gains learning games. As a matter of fact, fifth graders uh, um, in our district or in our state are actually tested in PE at the end of the year. So PE is certainly worthwhile, but it's not a break from the rigor and the curriculum of the classroom. Yep. And the research that I referred to earlier shows that academics improve when children get a break from the classroom that is unstructured, so that they can truly rejuvenate, refresh their minds, and come back to the classroom. And
0: Angela, we all know this because we need that time in our lives throughout our lives. We just know this to be true, but it's great to have the research to back it up. Moms, recess moms, fighting for recess to be put back into Florida schools. Angela Browning leading the fight. Angela, thanks so much for joining us, and let's keep in touch and find out what happens in this legislative session coming up. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports to history, and of course, the sciences. And we read a book review in the Wall Street Journal called It Never Hurts to Ask. And it was all about a book called Why? What Makes Us Curious? And the writer joins us, Professor Mario Livio. He's a professor of astrophysics and adjunct at UNLV, and he worked at the Hubble Telescope for 24 years. And thanks for joining us.
8: Sure, my pleasure.
0: Well, let's talk about astrophysics first. What is it? And why were you curious about that? Because that obviously led to your life's work, sir.
8: Well, astrophysics is really about understanding the universe. And by that I mean from the universe at large, you know, why the universe expands, uh, what is the evolution of the universe uh, to understanding how galaxies form, how stars form, how planets form, uh, how life emerged in the universe. All of that belongs to astrophysics.
0: And talk about now your, your quest to dig into this space called curiosity, because I think this is what separates man from everybody else, is the degree to which we're curious and what we do about it. Um, right. So talk about
8: that. So, indeed, humans are, are really quite unique in the fact that they ask why, Uh, even about unseen causes. Um, Animals are curious too, but they don't normally ask why, and especially not about things that they cannot directly see. Um, So uh, I was always a very curious person, uh, and at one point I just became very curious about curiosity itself. So, you know, I decided to spend uh, more than four years uh, studying, you know, what research has been done in psychology and neuroscience about curiosity. Uh, I spoke with many researchers in the field, uh, visited some labs and so on, and uh, that's the result, is this book.
1: Are we
0: naturally curious, or is it something we develop? Is there a curiosity gene, to
8: be y- yes. so blunt? Uh, <laughs> y- yes. So we are naturally curious in the sense that studies show that... Uh, 40 to 50 percent of uh, this trait of curiosity, as with many other psychological traits, are genetic. Uh, namely, if your parents were very curious, your grandparents were very curious, chances are you'll also be a very curious person. So so some part of it is genetic. But, of course, there, there, is, there are other parts that are, um, you know, just environmental and depending on your particular circumstances. I mean, it depends on... Your parents and how they they taught you, your teachers, uh, maybe the church you go to, um, things of that nature. The environment in which we live, I mean, does that allow you the luxury of being curious about certain things and not about others and so on?
0: Well, curiosity has done a lot for humankind. I mean, you posit that it's kept us alive in many respects. And if, if, if anything, it's expanded our life expectancies and so many other things. From the creation of fire, which I think is, you know, we can take it all the way back there. That was curiosity itself, wasn't it? The unseen, and the next thing you know, we're creating this thing out of nothing.
8: That's right. So so curiosity in, indeed drives, of course, all scientific research. Uh, it drives the process of education. It plays a role, you know, in books we write, films we see, and even simple conversations. I mean, you don't want to have a conversation with somebody unless you're somewhat curious about what they have to say. Um, and indeed, it goes back all the way to the pre-humans and the very early humans who had to be curious about, you know, what does fire do? You know, how can I use that? Uh, what do tools do? And, and things of that nature that expended both the diets of the early humans and Uh, you know the fact that uh, they could start to do all kinds of other things that they couldn't before.
0: Let's talk about the two dimensions of curiosity that you talk about in your book and one of them has to do with let's just say the senses and the other with the intellect. Um, Talk about those two things.
8: So uh, there are various types of curiosity so one curiosity is, for example it has been dubbed perceptual curiosity That's the curiosity we feel when something surprises us or when something that we see doesn't quite agree with what we know or at least think we know. Um, You know, think for example, you know, of uh, some children in some remote village uh, in, in South America seeing a white person for the very first time. Things of that type, things that really surprise you. Then there is epistemic curiosity. Epistemic curiosity is the real love of knowledge. It's what drives us to learn things. It, it's that pleasure, you know, or anticipation of pleasure that coming from new knowledge.
0: And that's uniquely, as, you, as we had said before, that is just uniquely human.
8: That's uh, right. That's a, that's a characteristic that is uniquely human.
0: Now, let's talk about some people. Um, let's talk about some curious people, and two that you feature. Well, let's talk about one first, uh, Leonardo da
8: Vinci. Yes. So, Leonardo has been uh, called uh, by... Uh, uh, Kenneth Clark, the art critic, the most relentlessly curious mind in history. And indeed, you know, here is a person, you know, of course we know him from his works of art, the Mona Lisa and all that, but he was really curious about everything. I mean, he has, you know, he has left us with some 7,000 pages of notes, and probably there were maybe double that when he lived. And in in those, he studies everything from the flow of water to the flight of birds to how do you paint to uh, how long is uh, the tongue of the woodpecker. I mean, he was literally interested in everything around him, except perhaps politics, which was a very good thing because he lived at the time of the Borgias and they basically killed anybody who got involved in politics.
0: Indeed, indeed. And, And, you know, we had just spent some time with David McCullough not long ago. And the curiosity of the Wright brothers was remarkable. I mean, these two guys just kept going at it. And they were curious, and they tested, and they were curious, and in their own way, they were hobbyists. But they were doing things that, well, Leonardo was thinking about and puzzled over himself. That curiosity drove them, too.
8: Right. You're absolutely right. Of course, you you know, I mean, not all were his ideas. I mean, a a little bit fewer than... The things we think were, you know, there were things that were in the air at the time. But the fact that he was interested in all of those is what makes him so absolutely unique.
0: Indeed, indeed. And, and very few people had that kind of mind and that level and breadth and depth of curiosity. Let's talk about that other person you talk about in the book, Richard Feynman. And by the way, who is he for folks who may not have ever heard his name?
8: Yeah, so Richard Feynman was uh, one of the most uh, celebrated physicists uh, of the 20th century. He worked in almost every area of physics and also a Nobel laureate in physics. Um, But in addition to everything he did in physics, he was interested in so many other things. He was a bongo drummer. Uh, He studied how to draw. Uh, He was an expert in uh, cracking safes. Uh, He uh, was uh, an expert in Mayan hieroglyphs and things like this. So he was, again, a sort of a Leonardo-type person, although more, you know, in the sciences uh, than uh, in the arts, uh, but, but really a person that found everything interesting. He basically said, everything is interesting if you look into it deeply enough.
0: And you coined a phrase, curiosity is the best remedy for
8: fear. Talk about that. Yes. You see, very often, things we're fearful about or afraid of are things that we just don't know much about or we don't understand. And by actually learning more about them and trying to understand them better, we actually can get rid of that fear. And and that's why I I truly strongly believe in this statement that curiosity is the best remedy for fear.
0: And indeed, uh, you you sort of intimate that curiosity is better than bravery. For overcoming fear,
8: yes, uh, cu- curiosity uh, very often will drive people to do uh, more risky things than you know uh, you just associate with brave people.
0: Right, I think brave people in- in intimates risk and risk taking, and uh, curiosity. Well, you just got to follow it down. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation. The book, why, what makes us curious, and we're curious about this book. We continue our conversation with Professor Mario Olivio after these commercial messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return with Professor Mario Livio, an adjunct professor at UNLV. He worked with Hubble Telescope for 24 years, and he's an astrophysicist. And we continue our conversation on his new book, Why? What Makes Us Curious. We read a terrific Wall Street Journal review, and we just had to dig in and get the book. Let's dig into some of the deeper things about this book and some of the depth here. Isn't the beginning of learning admitting you don't know something?
8: Oh, yes. That actually, you know, marked the the change from the Middle Ages into, you know, Renaissance and eventually into what we call the Enlightenment. I mean, what happened in the Middle Ages is that various entities and regimes basically tried to convince the people that they know everything or they know everything that needs to be known. And it is really that change where in the Enlightenment, when suddenly people said, wait a second, actually, we almost don't know anything, everything we have to learn. That is really what caused, you know, all this enormous change and then the beginning of modern science, modern arts and all that.
0: And talk about the Enlightenment, if you can, because there were many challenges to many institutions because of the Enlightenment. And in the end, curiosity can be dangerous to regimes.
8: You're right. Uh, you see, various oppressive regimes uh, find it, I think, more convenient for people to be less curious and ask fewer questions. And, you know, you might think that this is something that, oh, well, maybe, you know, in the Middle Ages and things like this. Uh, but you see this today. I mean, you, you know, you have regimes, you know, such as the Taliban, uh, who, you know, they destroyed these Buddhas of Bamiyan, This enormous, you know, 100-feet statues that existed, you know, since the 6th century. Or, you know, they shot in the head that young Pakistani girl, you know, Malala Yousafzai, uh, because she advocated education for young girls. Uh, So you see even today, you know, this attempts to suppress curiosity. And and the, the move to enlightenment is really when you realize that you should let uh, your curiosity be free.
0: Well, and I think that that gets to the larger point. Curiosity is power, in, in the end, and and power re, gen, generally feels threatened by curiosity.
8: You're right. I mean, at least there are such such powers that feel threatened by curiosity because it's sometimes easier to, um, you, you know, especially when when for for oppressive regimes, you know, it's easier to control people when they don't don't know things rather than you know, going the other way and for the regime to become more enlightened.
0: Indeed, and I think the second you start to ask even why of a government, and that becomes a dangerous question. Even that kind of curiosity uh, wants to be suppressed by certain types of dictatorships, and we've learned this throughout history. What happens when when you deny people their curiosity? In the end, the regime suffer. It's not even in their interest, is it, to suppress the curiosity of your own people?
8: In the long term, of course, it isn't. I mean, because those, those kind of societies, they, at the end, you know, they lag behind in terms of development, in terms of, uh, you know, science, in terms of uh, developing the, the humanities, the arts, and all that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable what's happened because of Curiosity. Uh, let's talk about some of the technology today. Do you think in the end that the Facebook, the Googles, uh, artificial intelligence are going to benefit Curiosity Hinder, or is it a mixed bag?
8: Well, I think it is somewhat a mixed bag, but I think that overall it's a good thing, and I'll, I'll tell you why. One type of curiosity, which is called specific curiosity, which is, you know, when you need to know a very particular thing, like uh, what was the name of the actor in that movie or something like that, uh, that actually, you know, um, the availability of information at our fingertips literally you know, can satisfy that very quickly. I mean, you know, once you maybe had to struggle for hours to try to remember that name, now you can Google it right away and find it. So that type of curiosity indeed is kind of hindered a little bit in some sense by, by the availability of these tools. But at the other, on the other hand, the important things really are helped by all the, the availability of these, uh, you know, digital tools. Because remember... You know, for example, questions that science asks, new questions that you want to research. I mean, those are questions to which you don't know the answers. So you are not going to find the answers on the Internet. So all all you are going to find on the Internet is to find information that maybe will help you to investigate this further. So in that respect, I find, for example, that the Internet really enhances my curiosity because I can satisfy the simple things relatively fast. But then you know that allows me to find more information to dig deeper.
0: It also allows people on platforms to connect and question each other and t- talk to each other in ways never before imagined, Professor.
8: You're exactly right. I mean, you know, I mean, in, at the time of Leonardo and so on, I mean, everything you know was communicated by by, by writing letters, and even those letters, uh, you know, were were done on paper, which was not cheap. Uh, and so on, and it took forever you know to get to where it needed to be, so you 're right I mean uh, the communication is so much faster, so uh, the passage of information is so much faster. Uh, the storage of information is of course completely different, and all that so uh, that that at the end those are the types of things that help curiosity.
0: How do we cultivate for the folks listening? We have a, over a million people listening to our show now, uh, and i 'm sure they're they're wondering, I have kids. Even for myself, how do I cultivate this thing called curiosity? Can I cultivate it?
8: Yes, it can be cultivated. And, you know, I, I would not claim to be an expert on this, but let me suggest a few things. Uh, one thing is, of course, to ask many questions. And, of course, the other thing is that they ask many questions. The kids tend to ask many questions. Try not to answer the questions immediately, but try to answer them in the following way. You know, they ask you, why that and that and that? So you try to answer well, why do you think it's that? And then the kid would say something. And then he would say, okay, so let's test that. If that is the correct answer, then it also means that that and that, and so on. And that's how you, you know, drive epistemic curiosity. Another thing that is very, very important, in my opinion, is that you should always start with something the child is already curious about. For, for example, you know, most young children are interested in dinosaurs. So start science lessons with dinosaurs, because they're already curious about those. And from that, you can then lead to other things, you know, you think they should know. You know, for example, you want to teach them about free-fall acceleration on Earth, okay? They may be bored by that. But you talk to them about dinosaurs, and then you say, well, dinosaurs actually became extinct. And you know why? Because an asteroid hit Earth and, you know, killed all the dinosaurs. You know why the asteroid hit Earth? Because it had accelerated towards the Earth because of the Earth's gravity. So you started with something they were curious about, and you led them to something that you wanted them to know.
0: You know, and it's interesting because you're digging into something I think about a lot, and that is where the the sciences and story combine and converge. Because in large measure, what you're doing is telling the kids a scientific story. And it's through questions and answers and this process that you're driving their curiosity. But my goodness, look at how the story plays a part, and the idea of story plays a part. What? How important is story to curiosity?
8: Uh, story is extremely important. I mean, you, you would you know people like stories. People love storytelling. Uh, I actually start I started the book with a very short story by, by this American author Kate Chopin which is called The Story of an Hour. Uh, and, and the reason I started it with that is because I was so impressed with her ability to create curiosity with almost every sentence. You know, almost every sentence heads, a- ends with some sort of an intellectual cliffhanger and you want to read the next sentence. And
0: that's a powerful thing, and we should keep that all in mind. One thing that surprised you as we leave this interview. What's the one thing that surprised you in your research, Professor? Uh, There
8: were a number of things that surprised me. I mean, for example, that difference between perceptual and epistemic curiosity, the curiosity we feel when we're surprised and curiosity we feel when, you know, we really love to learn. Uh, I didn't realize that those, you know, actually activated different parts of our brain and were associated in one case with an unpleasant state in the other with a pleasant state. That surprised me. Another thing that it amazed me, actually, was that, you know, I thought that curiosity is such an important topic that, you know, lots of neuroscientists and psychologists would be working on that, and I was surprised to actually see how, you know, a relatively small number of people are working on that. Of course, you know, consciousness is such a big thing, and curiosity is just a part of it, and so neuroscientists are working on many other things, but I was still surprised that Relatively, not more people are, are working on curiosity specifically.
0: Well, we're happy you did. The book is Why, What Makes Us Curious, the author, Professor Mario Livio, and he's a professor of astrophysics and adjunct at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, and he also worked with Hubble Telescope for 24 years. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor.
8: Thank you for having me.